What good is it, my brothers and sisters, if someone claims to have faith but has no deeds? Can such faith save them? Suppose a brother or a sister is without clothes and daily food. If one of you says to them, go in peace, keep warm and well fed, but does nothing about their physical needs, what good is it? In the same way, faith by itself, if it is not accompanied by action, is dead. But someone will say, you have faith, I have deeds. Show me your faith without deeds, and I will show you my faith by my deeds. You believe that there is one God. Good, even the demons believe that and shudder. You foolish person, do you want evidence that faith without deeds is useless? Was not our father Abraham considered righteous for what he did when he offered his son Isaac on the altar? You see that his faith and his actions were working together and his faith was made complete by what he did. The scripture was fulfilled that says, Abraham believed God and it was credited to him as righteousness and he was called God's friend. You see that a person is considered righteous by what they do and not by faith alone. In the same way, Was not even Rahab the prostitute considered righteous for what she did when she gave lodging to the spies and sent them off in a different direction? As the body without the spirit is dead, so faith without deeds is dead. I've been reading a book on hell, not just because we're coming up to Halloween either. Uh, It's because I've been trying to think through this idea uh, called universalism. Now, it's the idea that everyone will ultimately be saved for a life after death with God. And ever since uh, the 1980s, this has become increasingly popular in uh, churches, in cultures like ours. And the argument for it is the argument we mostly use in other parts uh, of our life as a church too, when we want to challenge any of the ethical or the doctrinal teaching of the Bible that we're not comfortable with. And that argument, of course, is is love. Uh, We use the love and we use the grace of God as a kind of gloss over things uh, that we're unhappy with. So here's some quotes from Pentecostal writers uh, of today, George Banoff. The real gospel can be nothing less than a radical affection of enjoyment. So there's no work to do, there's no struggle, it's all pleasure in being a Christian. Or Ben Dunn, uh, we can only be dependent, uh, passive recipients of this gospel. It can only be drunk down and received as a gift, which is partly true, but it ignores the whole theme of sanctification or detroit, uh, any uh, form of striving to become more and more like Jesus through personal devotion and diligence, no matter how sincere, bears the same fruit of failure and guilt. So what they're saying is that the grace of God means that no effort is necessary in the Christian life. Uh, Just believe and it's all done for you. Uh, All shall be saved regardless of how they live or even sometimes even regardless of what they believe. Now, I was trying to uh, imagine some biblical characters standing up in churches like that 
on uh, Sunday morning and uh, what they would be saying. Can you imagine John the Baptist uh, going to preach at one of these places and the Pharisees and Sadducees, who are believers, come to him and he says, hey, you guys, you're fine. Just believe and all will be well. Well, that's not actually what he said. He said to them, bear the fruits of repentance. Or Jesus, um, standing up on a Sunday morning, God loves you and accepts you no matter what. That's not actually what he said. What he said is, is, if you love me, you will obey me. Or can you imagine the Apostle Paul in his letter to uh, the church in Rome? Shall we sin because we're not under the law but under grace? Yeah, sure, go for it. You're all saved already and nothing you can do or will do will affect that. That's not actually what he wrote. He wrote, you are slaves to the one you obey. And if you've been set free from slavery to sin, you have become slaves uh, to righteousness. Or James. Oh my goodness, I could just, I couldn't imagine James standing up in a church like that and saying anything, any, anything other than faith. If it's not accompanied by works, is dead. Now, James, as you know, is a provocative preacher. And, and, and what he does at this point in his letter is he mirrors exactly the language that the Apostle Paul used in his famous letters to the church in Rome and Galatia. We're not justified. That is, our lives are not made right in God's eyes by works of the law, but by faith, by trust in Jesus Christ. By works, no one is made righteous. It's by faith that you've been saved. Now, James, at the time when he was writing his letter to all the churches, he knew that Paul, and in fact Jesus' teaching about the power of grace and faith was being misused basically being misused in much the same way that we're misusing it in some of our churches today. It's all grace. It's all love. It's all good. Now, James actually punches that kind of hypocrisy into the ground and says, if, if you think faith has nothing to do with works, tell him he's joking. It's wrong. So in verse 14, he says this in chapter 2, what good is it, my brothers and sisters, if someone claims to have faith but has no deeds? Can such a faith save you? Now, that's the kind of question that focuses the mind, isn't it? Can it actually work? Well, the answer that James gives us there in verse 22 is no. Faith is made complete by works. And, and we need to say, we need to say this is actually exactly what Paul teaches in every letter that he wrote, that our actions cannot save us, only trust in Jesus Christ and his work for us is good enough, but our actions, even if they're compromised actions, demonstrate our salvation. There's one example from Paul I can give here, and it's the famous one from his words in Ephesians 2. Verses 8 onwards. For it is by grace you've been saved, and that's through faith. And this is not from yourselves. It is the gift of God, not by works, so that no one can boast. 
For we are God's handiwork, created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which God prepared in advance for us to do. Now, it's actually exactly on this point about how grace and faith and works go together that I have to say, if anyone can, an Angli can. And that is basically because the history of our church has been shaped by blood, sweat and tears around this issue. So if you flick to the back of an Anglican prayer book and you find there the 39 articles of religion, Article 11 says this on justification. We are accounted righteous before God only for the merit of our Lord and Saviour Jesus Christ by faith and not for our own works or deservings. Wherefore, that we are justified by faith only is a most wholesome doctrine and very full of comfort. Preach it, brother. Yeah, absolutely. That's right. But Article 12 goes on to say this, on good works. It's the other half of the equation. Albeit that good works, which are the fruits of faith and follow after justification, cannot put away our sins and endure the severity of God's judgment, yet they are pleasing and acceptable to God in Christ and do spring out necessarily of a true and lively faith, insomuch that by them a lively faith be as evidently known as a tree is discerned by its fruit. Quoting someone famous there. So James... Is it enough just to believe? Can that faith save you? Well, James gives us four illustrations of why it cannot. I'm reading from verse 15. Suppose a brother or sister is without clothes and daily food. If one of you says to them, go in peace, be warm and well fed, but does nothing about their physical needs, what good is it? In the same way, faith by itself, if it's not accompanied by action, is dead. So there's no practical help here offered to the needy. Instead, what's happened is a, a, a blessing is prayed. And, and it's not that James is anti-prayer. We're going to see in the coming weeks. No, James expects us to be prayerful people. But he's just not too keen on prayer that doesn't seek to be part of its own answer. Have you ever noticed that in prayer? Have you ever experienced that? You know, you, you, you pray and feel a deep concern for something or someone that, during your prayer time and, and you think, oh, I wish our church was doing more about that or I, I wish we were helping so-and-so. And then the penny drops. I can be at least part of the answer to the prayers I've been praying. Now, James says the person who's left unchanged by the needs before them or who's been left unchanged by the prayers they pray, who walks past the wounded Samaritan on the other side of the road without stopping, is at risk of their prayers being a religious mask for apathy. And that ain't faith. I'm reading from verse 18 of chapter 2, but someone will say, you have faith, I have deeds. Show me your faith without deeds, and I will show you my faith by my deeds. You believe that there is one God. Good! The demons believe that, and they shudder. 
In this illustration, James tells us of demons who believe the right thing. And uh, he quotes part of the famous Shema from Deuteronomy 6. God is one. And, and the demons believe that. In, in fact, in the Gospels, uh, that the demons often say what is true about God and what is true about his son, Jesus. Uh, the devil himself quotes uh, scripture during Jesus' temptations. They know their stuff. Yet they're eternally damned. Why? Well, when you read the context of the passage that James quotes from Deuteronomy 6, verse 4, you'll get it. This is what it says. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength. Demons have got orthodox theology, but the nature of their faith is revealed in evil actions and poisoned hearts. They do not love. They do not do the works of love. So Abraham, and he's sometimes called the father of faith. And the story that James focuses on comes after Abraham has been waiting for over 25 years for God to honour his promise of giving him a son. And while Isaac is still a boy, God asks Abraham not just to kill him, but to sacrifice him. And that's significant. What he's saying is, offer him back to me. Now, for us, that's a terrible shock. In the culture of the day amongst the Canaanites that Abraham uh, lived, that child sacrifice was practice. But, but later on we find one of the reasons God judges the Canaanites under Moses and Joshua is because they were doing these kind of things. And it's still a shock because it's totally against the character of God in the Bible who's shown himself to be a defender of the defenseless, that he should ask Abraham to do this. So what's going on? Well, when we read Genesis carefully, we see Abraham gets it. He knows what's going on. He recognises that this is a test. So in Genesis 22, verse 5, he said to his servants, stay here with the donkey while I and the boy go over there. We will worship and then we will come back to you. Verse 7, he says, Isaac spoke up and said to his father, Abraham, father, yes, my son, Abraham replied. The fire and the wood are here, Isaac said, but where is the lamb of the burnt offering? Abraham answered, God himself will provide the lamp for the burnt offering, my son. And the two of them went on together. Now, what's so interesting about this test that Abraham's facing is it mirrors the trials of Eden and the trials in Job and the trials that every follower of Jesus knows today. Will you love me? Or will you love my gifts above me? And we can see why James focuses on this, this test of Abraham in, in Genesis 22, because it's the counterpoint of God reckoning Abraham as righteous before him 25 years earlier in, in Genesis 15. It's the completion of his faith, because this test, it runs counter to what he knows about God. It comes after 25 years of waiting and believing and doubts and a desire for his, of his own son, which has already compromised him and compromised his faith. It, it comes in his old age, so there's, there's no second chances to be built from here. And it's directed at someone he loves. Now, in the New Testament, Hebrews 11 picks this up and says to us, 
This is what faith looks like. You know, sometimes it isn't pretty. Often the backstory is full of compromises, things that have gone on that we're not proud of. But at the end of the day, faith trusts God to resolve the conflicts, to forgive the wrong, even to raise the dead if need be. But faith acts. And James's point is that after 25 years of walking in faith, it's come to this. You see, his faith was completed by what he did. I just want to say to, to all of those who over the years have said to me, look, I couldn't possibly walk back into a church because of the stuff I've done, the roof would fall down and so forth. Well, just check this out. Rahab, she's a Canaanite. In other words, she's a member of an oppressive and violent race. She's a woman, no official status in her culture. She's a prostitute. Yeah, let's not go there. And she's a traitor to her own people. But she had heard of what the Lord God had done to Pharaoh and Egypt. And she decided, hey, this is the real deal. This God is not one of the false and cruel idols of Canaan. There's an army outside our gates, and that army is the just judgment of God. We deserve what's coming. And for her to believe meant she would act. She harvests the spies. And she and her family alone of Jericho are spared. So what's the point of these stories? This. Faith is a struggle of action or it is nothing. Now if life was a movie and you were going to watch a movie about faith, what would you pay to go and see? The cerebral ones, you know, the hyper-religious blessing without action. We know what's true, but we won't do it. Bad, do-nothing dudes kind of movie of the demons. Or would you go for the action movies? You know, human stories of struggle and doubt and compromise and heartbreak and passion and getting it wrong and still the heroes emerge imperfectly doing the right thing. Why? Because that's what's true to do. Faith is shown in works. And I guess the question is, which movie do we want our lives to be? James, in his discipleship course, has already told us that Christian life has suffering. Compromise in the backstory, it's got temptations, it faces doubts and uncertainties and risk. And God gives us Himself in Christ in the middle of that game the ability to grow in perseverance, the ability to mature. He gives us wisdom, He gives us prayer, He gives us a desire for purity and mercy and kindness and listen and respect of other people. And yet, we live real lives. And our lives are full of inconsistencies and we doubt God and we doubt ourselves and we wonder if the small good that we can do is actually good enough. But James wants to encourage us and say, get up and do whatever faith you have as best as you can, leaning on God for wisdom and strength and forgiveness. And then look at those stumbling works that you do and know, yeah, sure, they can't save me. But they are the sign in my life that this thing is real. 
It is working itself out in my heart and hands and not just in my head. Those works are an encouragement to us, a sign to us that we are saved. And that is what saving faith looks like. Now, I've already given the Anglican Church a bit of a promo in this talk. So let me finish with a prayer said in the prayer books for last week. Pray this together. Together, almighty God, in your wisdom, you have so ordered our earthly life that we must walk by faith and not by sight. Give us such trust in your fatherly care that in the face of all perplexities, we may give proof of our faith by the courage of our lives. Through Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen.